Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for listening to this episode of Kicking the Kairiarchy. We are your hosts, Elena and Sid. We are an intersectional feminist podcast series. Last month we talked about language and you guys seemed to really like it. We got a lot of positive feedback from it, which was great. As ever, let us know what you think and feel free to call us in. This month, we are continuing with the topics that we tend to have quite a lot of privilege in, which means that they're also quite difficult. And this topic is disability. At the very beginning, when we first started this podcast, one of the first pieces of feedback we were actually given was to not describe ourselves as able-bodied, but rather as non-disabled. We were also called in for not correcting our guests when they described something as being crazy or insane. So... We've already learned quite a lot about disability since doing the podcast, but actually still got quite a lot to learn. So thinking about intersectional feminist circles and movements and being the best intersectional feminist that we can be, how often do we actually think about disability? And when we think about the language that we use, particularly to describe disability, is it better to say people with disabilities or disabled people? Does the disability come before or after the person? Have you ever thought about how you might pass as neurotypical and the impact that that might have? And how do we counter the invisibility of black, British, disabled women? Let's hear from Kaz, Michelle and Francis to find out. Okay, so I'm Francis, I'm white, I'm disabled, I'm straight and working class. Great. Thank you so much. We're really excited to have you um, on the podcast. I was wondering if you might start with a really easy question, which is how you might define disability. I think really a disability is sort of any health condition that affects you in something that you might want to do. And that's, yeah, that's a huge range of things. I think when people think of disability, sometimes they think of quite a limited view, you know, maybe a wheelchair user or something. And that's obviously part, but there's a huge sort of different spectrum disability and think from learning disability to mental health problems you know about 12 million people in the uk alone with a disability so it's certainly a far-reaching thing and, and ultimately it's about how you identify yourself i think it's ultimately about whether or not you identify as disabled is the most important factor thank you when we first started doing this podcast we described ourselves as able and we got called in and and asked to describe it ourselves instead as non-disabled. Is there any chance you could explain to us why it's better to say non-disabled or if that is indeed the case? I think you hear in popular culture, don't you, the, the term able-bodied quite a lot. I think that's, that's probably a very established way of describing someone that, that isn't disabled. But most disabled people might prefer the term non-disabled. I think when you think of the term able, you think of it as a positive thing, don't you? If you're able to do something, there's positive connotations to that. So by definition, to not be able to become the negative. And that, I think, sort of rises into 
sort of stereotypes around disability that suggest that a disabled person is less able than non-disabled people. And obviously, your disability, whatever that is, affects certain things in your life. So, for example, I'm a wheelchair user, and therefore I am, by definition, less able to walk than someone who isn't a wheelchair user. But a term like able sort of cuts off the other things in, in my life that I'm very able to do and actually might be more able to do than a non-disabled person. So I think it's about sort of rejecting the negative connotations and also getting a more comprehensive view of the person rather than buying into the idea that, that you're somehow less because you're disabled. Does this tie into person-specific language? Is that what it's called, you know, when you talk about someone as saying a person with a disability rather than a disabled person? Are those related? I think, just to really get confusing, it's slightly different because, because interestingly, I think a lot of disabled people, actually, I know my readers, for example, are very keen on me not using the term people with disabilities. People generally, and this is a general statement, for disabled people because it, it actually it's quite a political term it's really important to acknowledge that the way that society is arranged impacts my disability so my disability doesn't just come from me it comes from the way society decides to arrange itself so for example if i can't get into a building yes it's because i'm using a wheelchair actually it's because no one bothered to put a ramp over the step or build a lift and that's why a lot of disabled people prefer to use the term disabled people because it puts a real emphasis on the fact that I've been disabled by other factors. Language really matters but I think it's also really important to not worry too much about it as you go along. Disability is one of those things that I think a lot of people feel quite awkward talking about sometimes and part of that comes from just sometimes not quite knowing what to say. So I think it's really important to have a balance between absolutely being really willing to listen and learn about what the best language is, but at the same time not getting so worried about it that we are in a situation where we're less likely to talk about it. Yeah, totally. And I, th- I think that's a really good point and something that our guests are always reminding us is that basically the best thing that you can do is to simply listen. So continuing on this theme of language... A lot of the things that we've seen recently in the past few years is this idea of disabled people being inspirational and superhuman. Can you tell us a little bit more about this kind of, I guess, proliferation of language and why it's not actually that helpful or useful? Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? You see a lot online, I think, don't you, with the whole inspirational tag. You see the around the Paralympics, for example. Also, there's sort of those YouTube videos of you know, someone with a disability, like in America, being taken to the prom, for example. We hear it a lot, but at the same time, as you say, why am I describing these people as inspirational? And is it actually beneficial? And I think you get in a bit of a sticky point with the term inspirational to describe disabled people, because it falls into that path sometimes of, of describing really normal things in, in really grand terms. So, for example, you know, a disabled person... Um, just getting out of bed in the morning and being asked on a date, for example, isn't really a special thing. It just buys into the idea that a disabled person is somehow a particular, you know, unique individual who um, should be treated in a very different way than other people and that it's somehow the sort of patronising 
condescending idea that we should celebrate every little thing that a disabled person does because it must be such a terrible existence for them being a disabled person that we have to celebrate everything they do. And I think that's when that idea of inspiration becomes a little bit dodgy. And I think also, in a certain way, it, it often shifts away from actually being about the disabled person. It becomes sort of about this, often in a very well-meaning way, but becomes a sort of warm, fuzzy feeling in the non-disabled person. So you hear a lot about, for example, if you if you watch a video online of someone, for example, with... Um, with a double leg amputee, for example, who's doing something amazing, you know, rock climbing, for example. And you'll see non-disabled people post it as, this is my new inspiration for the gym, for example. And that, that's great and all, but actually all you're doing there is sort of objectifying this disabled person and using them as sort of an object of your own inspiration. It's not actually about that person anymore in their life. It's about how them as a disabled person can be used to make you feel better about your own life as a non-disabled person. That's really useful to hear you break down why it is that that feel-good video <laughs> might be more yeah. than we think it is. Yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what is the current situation for disabled people in, in Britain today? I think at this point in Britain, we are sort of in a situation where we are in some really good places. We have made huge gains as a disability rights movement, if you like. Though it's been going on for decades upon decades, the gains that have been made are all quite recent. As recent as the 1990s, it was perfectly legal to turn down a disabled person for a job or not to make a bus or a train wheelchair accessible. And we're in a much better position in many ways than we were 20, 30 years ago. But at the same time, the current time, if you like, politically, is quite a worrying one. You know, we saw last year that the Equality Watchdog said that for many disabled people, we're treated as, in their words, second-class citizens in Britain because essentially many of the things that non-disabled people take for granted, disabled people are still not able to do. Things that are very basic, like housing access or using public transport or getting into the local pub, going to a sporting event. Really, the way we've seen in recent years, cuts to government support have had a hugely detrimental impact. We've seen around £30 billion um, of cuts to disabled people's benefits, for example, over the past eight years. On top of that, we've seen really severe cuts to things like social care packages. So social care is essentially the service that enables disabled people to have help with basic things like washing and dressing and getting out to the pub or to work. And because of cuts to, to that service, we're now seeing around one million disabled people living without the social care that they need. And things have gotten so bad that the United Nations concluded last year that the UK government has committed what it calls grave violations of disabled people's rights. So I think we're at a time in Britain where there's been much progress made, but in other ways, some some really scary times for a lot of disabled people in the country. Wow, I had no idea that the UN said that. It's interesting that people outside were saying you, 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 what you're doing is wrong. Yeah, I think that was a really shocking moment, I think, because you simply wouldn't expect one of the richest 
countries on earth is in a situation where the UN is doing that. So what do disabled people want to see in things like maybe in government and in legislation and all, in all these different plans? What would be ideal? What do you want to see change? From, from talking to people for, for work and from my own perspective, I think a major thing that, that would be fantastic would be a, a social security system that was less focused on this idea of repetitive testing, if you like. We've seen in recent years a real focus on um, suspicion around disabled people on benefits and introduction of um, testing regimes by private companies um, hired by the government um, in order to determine whether or not disabled people um, sort of deserve, essentially, their benefits. And this has been an incredibly um, damaging and faulty system. So I think that is a huge thing that disabled people are, are looking to be reformed. I think another key thing is basic stuff like access. We, we first got the legal requirements in the 1990s. And, you know, we're here um, years later, but actually, even though there's been a lot of progress, there's still hugely um, inaccessible parts of society. There's still a, a real problem on the British High Street, for example, um, in the lack of access provided for disabled people, despite the fact that legally there is already the obligation for businesses to make those access arrangements at this point. It's simply not happening. Does disability have an effect on social mobility or maybe the question should be phrased the other way around? I think um, yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I think that like most of marginalised groups, it all sort of connects. So disability sort of links to sort of class and poverty and race and sex. So we're more likely to be unemployed and we're more likely to leave school without formal qualifications, and that's a real issue. So you're in a situation where if you're from a sort of working class background and also disabled, you've got a double whammy, if you like, where you're, you're pushed back in your chances of, of, of getting those sort of higher paid jobs are really a, a disadvantage on, on multiple grounds. And I think that that's a huge issue. There's so much potential within disabled people there simply isn't properly fulfilled because all these barriers are in place. What can we do then to be better allies to disabled people? There's so many different things, isn't there? I think part of it is elevating the voices of disabled people. I think you're making an effort to think, actually, do I actually follow any disabled journalists or comedians or actors on Twitter, for example. Why is that? And who can I talk to? And to get that different perspective. Or things like actually speaking out when you do notice sort of exclusion and discrimination. One of the things like we saw this week was the British Rose cover, that the new project. It was an amazing piece, incredibly positive. But while it talks about diversity in feminism, it really noticeably didn't include any disabled women. And one of the most heartening things I saw was actually people on Twitter who aren't disabled, women saying, actually, along with women of colour, working class women, trans women, where the disabled women. And I find that incredibly heartening when it's non-disabled women who are using their voices to say, actually, even though it doesn't directly affect me, I think it matters and I'm going to talk about it. That was going to be one of my questions in that, do you think feminism, and particularly the feminist movement within the past few years, is inclusive of disabled women? We've seen huge claims, haven't we, in sort of 
popular culture and a sort of willingness to talk about feminism. But I think absolutely it's right to say that for disabled women, like many marginalised groups, it is still a case that the portrayal of feminism, if you like, is often this white, middle-class, non-disabled perspective. And it's really, really important to repeatedly to think about actually what different perspectives are there, what women am I cutting out from this perception, from this experience. And I think disabled women are often in a situation where we're the sort of the last group, if you like, to to be invited to the feminist party. It's sort of a situation where even people who are making a brilliant effort to include different groups often still manage to forget disabled women. I think it's incredibly important to actually acknowledge that that makes feminism weaker because it's not actually getting a, a feminism that is reflective of, of all these different millions of women. Disabled women are affected by many issues that, that all women are, but also in a different way. You know, domestic violence, for example. So in the UK, disabled women are twice as likely to be victims of domestic violence than non-disabled women. And that, that's a pretty staggering statistic, but I don't think it's one that, that most non-disabled feminists are aware of, and certainly not one that gets much attention. And I think it's incredibly important whenever you do these sort of campaigns to remember, well, actually, how does this issue that I'm talking about affect different types of women? And I think disabled women certainly need to be one of those groups. Why do you think disability, and particularly disabled women, and their issues arguably so invisible in society? Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? I I think it's probably a very complex, complex situation. I think one, the issue is perception of of what a woman is. You know, a big issue for disabled people is this cultural idea that that we're not quite like normal people. And I think even the best intentions, everyone internalizes those sort of ideas. You know, for example, if I'm running a, a campaign about you know domestic violence, one hurdle to begin with is getting over that cultural myth that disabled women don't have boyfriends. And once you're in a situation where you think of disabled women as sort of, you know, sexless, we don't go on dates, it becomes a hurdle in itself. And those sort of hurdles just aren't in place for other women. So certainly there's all complex cultural myths that, that are in place. And I think secondly, I'd say sort of representation, it often just comes back. To, to who's in the room, I think. You simply don't have the disabled celebrities, the disabled politicians. And when those people aren't in the room, that, I think, really impacts discussions that happen, the focuses that occur, and the, the exclusion of disabled women from those groups, I think, naturally has a huge impact on, on the end product. Wow. Thank you so, so much, Francis. It's been really wonderful talking to you and, and hearing from you. The final question that we always ask is, how can us and our listeners support you? So any projects that you're working on, anything at all you want to promote or platform, now now is your time. All right, let's so you can follow me on Twitter as Dr Francis Ryan. I'm a Guardian columnist, so you can see my Guardian column every Thursday. And I'm also currently writing a book, so over next year, I'll be publishing a book, hopefully, on disabled people in Britain. But absolutely follow on, on Twitter for, for any of the work that I'm doing 
it'll be fantastic to talk to you. So if our listeners are listening to this podcast and then want to maybe know a bit more about disability in the UK and how they can help or how uh, how we can be better allies to it or just how to yeah, yeah. understand it. So I say if you're um, a disabled woman yourself, then I think a group called Sisters of Frida are a really great and um, sort of feminist um, disabled group who sort of dot around the country and do lots of different projects. If you're disabled um, and feminist yourself, you might want to Google them and get in touch. I think that if you want to be sort of involved in disabled projects or disabled campaigns, the big disability charity in the UK is Scope, but there's a huge number of different ones. If you start Googling, if you want a political angle, uh, there's a group called Disabled People Against Cuts. They do a load of fantastic campaigns, activism, and other things against cuts to disability support. So that'd be my first few suggestions. That was Francis explaining why disabled people aren't inspirational and what feminism needs to do to be truly inclusive. Physical space and language need to be accessible. Up next is Michelle. My name is Michelle Daly. I'm a black disabled woman and I've worked in equality issues for over 10 years across different areas and professional sectors. Last year, I launched my website looking at the experience of black disabled people in Britain. That's me, really. Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast today. I thought I'd start with a really simple question. (laughs) What's it like being a disabled black woman in the UK today? That's always an interesting question because I'm always wondering what people want me to say. I present with different identities, so therefore I'm seen as a problem. It was Kimberly Crimshaw-Williams, an African-American scholar that helped me to really understand and articulate my experience. It was through her theory around intersectionality. And what she basically was telling me is that my different identities are not isolated and I cannot create a hierarchy based on my identities. So don't expect me to create an identity hierarchy. More often than not, I'm asked to do that. And the moment you want to focus on single bits about me, you know, Okay, Michelle, so what's it like to be disabled? Okay, what's it like to be a woman? What's it like? But I can't do that because I am one. All of those are part of who I am. So what it does in terms of going back to your question, what's my experience like? It makes me more aware of human behavior towards differences and the negativity that comes with it. I'm going to constantly be viewed as a challenge. It was Audre Lorde, Audre Lorde sorry, an American feminist and civil rights activist. And I love what she has to say. She's saying, Don't let other people define you, define yourself. By doing so, if you let other people define you, they will eat you alive. It's something that I have to be mindful of. If I don't speak out, I don't challenge, then people will put me in the boxes that they feel appropriate. On your website, you wrote a really lovely thank you to British black disabled women activists and campaigners. Why was it important for you to do so? I did it really to give a shout out to British black disabled women and to highlight the contribution that they've made to the equality agenda. For example, you know, Mary Prince, she was born into slavery and she was the first woman to present an anti-slavery petition to Parliament for enslaved African people to gain freedom. You know, how often do we hear about this stuff? And I also wanted to give a shout out to British Black Disabled Women Today for the great work that they're doing on the field. For example, Caroline Nelson, who heads up Choice in Hackney. I wanted to fill that gap, but also I wanted to show that we have a history and say that we have made a positive contribution to Britain and the rest of the world. But I also wanted to show we are not saved by others and we are not helpless eaters. We can't expect other people to tell our story. We have to do that ourselves. Why do you think that it is that Black 
disabled women aren't celebrated throughout history. There are stories, there are stories about black women as we've seen with Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. But I think the issue is, is that we don't always recognise their impairment. For example, as I just said, how many people realise that Mira Prince and Sojourner Truth have, have an impairment? And I think in many ways we don't want to make that connection because black people were made disabled because of the conditionalities of the history and the things they had to endure, for example, slavery. So we can't disconnect the two. I've also kind of highlighted in my head when I'm thinking about why we're not kind of celebrated or, or recognised is there's not an interest, so therefore our existence is ignored. Those are some of the problems. And you're saying, why aren't you know black disabled people celebrated? I think it's not just about celebrating. We need to be talking, why do we not talk about the issue, period? Thinking about current day, what, what do you say to people who say, oh, we, we can't find any black disabled people to, to platform or to talk about? Mm, yeah, that, that, you know, don't tell me you can't find black disabled people being ridiculous. You're telling me that there's none around, especially if you're living in London. Seriously? The way I, I want people to think about it is that if we take our formal life and think about hosting the party, one of the things we do, we think about who we want to attend that party. Who do we connect with? So... The reality is, business is no different. It's no different to how we look at in our informal life. So the question is, who do we want around that table? So it's easy to say that we can't find black disabled people. It makes a convincing argument to justify it. Simply, have you tried? Who was on your invitation list? If your connection is not diverse, you ain't even thinking about your list to invite certain people. So what happens now? is that many organisations are forced into kind of doing that. So when you say, you know, we can't find black disabled people, have you tried? And the only reason that forces people to do it is a tick box exercise. That's what drives, I know, drives my invitation many of the time, because you have to satisfy your tick box exercise and your tokenistic, tokenistic work. And you want me to help raise the profile of your organisation. So don't be surprised if Michelle turns down your invitation. So... It goes back to the question for me is who do you want around the table? I was appointed as a transformation project manager for one of the large charities, Scope. Not long into the job, I was asked to be part of their promotional material. So I declined the offer. And the reason I declined the offer, I looked around the organisation and questioned how many black people were in the top senior position. There was very, very few. And how many black disabled people and black disabled women? There was none besides me. So my invitation to be part of the promotional material was really for the benefit of the organisation and to help them continue to justify their lie that they're an inclusive organisation. This is what helps people to encourage their tokenism. We take the one and we keep using that one to churn out and say, you know, we've got that one person, so we're doing our work. But when you don't have that one person, we say we cannot find. Well, I wasn't going to be part of that justification that we've got our one disabled person, so you can lie. You don't need to employ it anymore. And because I declined the invitation, I was told that I didn't believe in the values and ethos of the organisation. So, of course, I became the problem. So if we're thinking about levels of inclusion and the first level being, oh, we can't find anyone who, who fits yeah. those those identities, and then, oh, we have one... Yeah. <laughs> um, what what are the next more proactive levels? Because it starts by by starting to diversify who you employ or who you work with or who you invite to your party. But what what are the next more more proactive steps? What does inclusion ideally look like? We confuse inclusion with integration. So it's not about just saying we're bringing one individual into the organisation and not properly supporting that person. What we do find is an organisation will say they've got is very is very diverse. But when you start looking at the levels of hierarchy and looking where people's progression sits, 
many of the lower ranked jobs and middle ranked jobs are done by particular groups of people. But when you start going up to the senior ranks of the organisation, you'll find that very few black people are sitting up there. Very few black women are sitting up there and you very, very fine. I'm talking about what you can see of uh, visibly black disabled women at the top, unless it's working for specific types of organisations which are run and controlled by disabled people. Yep. So you touched a little bit on Sisters of Frida. Would you be able to explain to us why, why you co-founded Sisters of Frida, why it's important and, and what they... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What you do? Yeah, so the idea came around in about 2010, and it was really kind of provide a, a, a space for disabled women to come together and share experiences and, and build networks really with other organisations. Elena, she's she's a proper driver really. Um, she's like, Mitch, what do you think of the idea? I said, Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, Elena makes things happen, and, and so brought together a group of other women and, and that's how Sister Frida was born, really. It was to provide that voice for disabled women. And actually, Sister Frida have done some really good stuff. They punch quite hard in terms of the representation out there, even a short while we've been in existence. Two final questions. One being, so how can we be better allies to disabled women of colour? And second of all, how can we find you and support your work? What we're doing now is, is really helpful about helping to promote my stuff. But not doing token it stuff because it's just it seems like a good idea but because you agree with what you're doing and you support what you're doing it's not being a sponge to drain knowledge so it's only there for your benefit also move over give other people opportunities into leadership roles but in terms of you as, as, as what you're doing is me out here me talking on your podcast is great really that helps raise the profile of what I'm doing and by me mentioning other people, that helps raise the profile of other people's work as well. And lastly, how can we, I guess you kind of touched on it a little bit about like supporting you and like supporting your work, but how can we, how can our listeners um, find you and support Sisters of Frida and the work that you guys do? So there's two points here, right? So for Sister of Frida, you can type in, in Google Sister of Frida's website. So it's Sister of Frida. And you can continue to either donate in terms of if you're interested in what we do you can share the stuff we do you can invite us to be at your stuff really what your what's out there what you want us to take part in and if we are interested in it because we don't just jump on things because it's just about that and then me as an individual you can access my website by again typing my name 
and pretty much doing the same thing, but I don't do donate. Um, so, but for Sister Frida, yeah, you can you can invite us if you're doing events, um, if you want us to uh, feed into stuff. But of course, we're, we're not doing it for nothing. We are, you know, we expect to be paid for work that we take part in. Too often, people think disabled people can only do things for for voluntary and not be paid. Um, we have to have a, a decent wage like everyone else. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so, so much, Michelle, for, for giving us some time on your um, Saturday afternoon. And especially, we appreciate that like speaking to us takes a lot of um, emotional labour, um, explaining everything to us. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. No worries. Michelle spoke to us about tokenism in organisations and the difference between inclusion and integration. Check out Sisters of Frida to support their networks and to recognise the history of disabled women in Britain. Up next, we listen to Kaz. Hi, I'm Kaz. Uh, I'm 36, I'm white, I'm middle class and I'm autistic. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kaz. And also for getting in touch because the reason we're interviewing you is because you, you listened to our episodes, you said that you liked them but that you thought we should do more to cover specifically neurodiversity and autism. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I've, I mean, I've been listening to your podcast for a while and I love them but there's not a lot out there about neurodiversity and it's just starting to break through now to the mainstream. People are starting to listen to autistic adults more, which is great. But I just wanted to kind of get our voices out there a little bit more. So can you start by telling us what is neurodiversity? Neurodiversity, very simply, it's the idea that neurological differences like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, bipolar, there's quite a long list. They're a normal, naturally occurring variation of the human brain. So it's not seen as, you know, neurotypical brains are the default and everything else is like a broken version of that. It's more the idea that there are lots of variations of the human brain and that humanity benefits from great variety. Interesting. So are there two distinctions there, neurotypical and neuro... Neurodivergent. Can you give us a kind of rough idea of what the breadth is that can be covered by neurodivergent how would you describe them well i would probably describe them as neurodivergences i guess other people might call them differences i don't tend to like terms like conditions and syndromes and things like that because i find them quite negative and also it kind of treats neurotypical brains as the default and everything else is like a damaged version of that which is kind of the opposite of what neurodiversity is you know autistic people are not damaged versions of real people you know dyslexics aren't damaged versions of real people it's just we're different and I think that's really interesting that it's that it's about anybody that has anything like autism or ADHD isn't like it isn't broken and it is it's just literally just like deviating from the norm right so that yeah yeah I mean, I don't know if you know anything about the social model of disability versus the medical model of disability. Can you explain that to us? Oh, sure. The social model of disability believes that people are more disabled by their environment than they are by their particular disability. For example, autistic people are more disabled by a society that's set up for neurotypical people than we are by our actual autism. And the medical model of disability is the idea that people are disabled by their actual disability and that that is the thing that needs fixing rather than society. So we would err towards the social model of, of disability and saying that actually it's a societal problem that doesn't cater for the, the great diversity in, in needs, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the social model is what most sort of neurodiversity activists go towards because there are things that we could change in society that would make life a hell of a lot easier for autistic people. 
Um, and that would be easier than trying to make autistic people somehow be less autistic. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's like living with autism or, or being autistic? Which words should I use better? Which words are better? <laughs> oh, right. OK, well, personally, I prefer identity first language, which means saying autistic person rather than person with autism. The reason for this is that I feel that any kind of person first language seems to try and distance you from the autism as if it's something bad. Like, person with autism, let's remind you that you're a person first and you're more than your autism. And I just think, well, you know, what's wrong with being autistic? OK, super. So what's it like being an autistic person? Oh, well, I mean, I don't know what it's like not being an autistic person, so I don't really know how to compare it. I found out I was autistic quite late in life compared to most people, I guess. I was 33. Before that, I just thought I was useless at a lot of things. I didn't do brilliantly at school never really had much of a career and I was always mainly just confused and tired that was that was my main feelings because I didn't know why I was struggling so much and when I found out I was autistic all of a sudden it was like I had been given this instruction manual this is the reason why you are the way you are and um, first of all it meant I could be a lot easier on myself not blame myself for you know not being able to do things the same way as everybody else so that was a huge positive and also it meant I could make contact with the autistic community, talk to other people that are autistic about all kinds of things, everything from activism to just jokey conversations. So yeah, being autistic to me, it's, it's a big part of my identity and you know, it, it never switches off. I'm always autistic, everything I do is autistic, so it's not like I can separate it from the rest of me. I have a very limited understanding, I think, in this field. And so can you explain the spectrum of autism? Because I, I, am I right in thinking that, that there is quite a wide spectrum for autism? Yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the autism spectrum. A lot of people seem to think it's like a scale from not at all autistic to super really autistic. Um, and that's not what it is. It's more like a sort of a big circle I guess with uh, different things on there like socialising style executive functioning and basically all autistic people have got sort of quite a spiky profile for talent so we might be really really good at one thing and not so good at another and it's not as even as somebody that's not autistic so it's not a case of you know there's high functioning autistic people at one end and low functioning autistic people at the other it's it's more that's that's a really sort of simplified and incorrect version of it how do you become diagnosed with autism i mean is diagnosed a fair term as well because i feel like the word diagnosis is very is linked to kind of like the medical model and it's assuming that something's wrong with you so if, if yeah if saying, some people prefer the term identified rather than diagnosed right identified then and also because a medical diagnosis can be really hard to access for some people. So, you know, having diagnosed is the sort of accepted form is kind of a bit exclusive because people that aren't able to access that, a lot of them self-diagnose, which is seen as completely acceptable within the autistic community by nearly everyone, you know, um, especially in the U.S. I mean, I don't know loads about the uh, medical system there, but I know that it's an insurance problem for a lot of people. 
that they just can't afford to access that diagnosis. How did you go about being identified with autism then? Uh, well, I've always uh, struggled. I've always had mental health issues, anxiety and depression, and I've been treated on and off since I was a teenager. I got into a lot of trouble at secondary school when I was a teenager, and it just did not make sense to me, the world, basically. I found it very confusing, um, and I was constantly told it's anxiety and depression, and I just kind of accepted it. And this went on, well, for about 15 years. And then when I became a parent, my eldest child was about three, maybe, and she was having a meltdown, and it just kind of clicked in my head. Whatever it is that she's dealing with is the same as me. And I knew then that it was not just anxiety and depression. I knew that there was something deeper that was causing the anxiety and depression, and I knew I had to find out what it was. So I you know, consulted Dr. Google like everybody does. To begin with, I thought maybe ADHD because I have huge problems with uh, attention, um, focus, and basically being organised. I suck at it so badly. So I read a lot about that, um, started discovering articles about adult women, and then kind of stumbled upon all this stuff about autism and reading some blogs by autistic adults was just kind of like, oh... It was a bit of an eye-opener. I was like, wow, because I think most people, when they hear autism, they think eight-year-old boy that's obsessed with trains and that's good at maths. And, you know, that's not me at all. I'm terrible at maths. People have this false idea of what autism is, so it just didn't occur to me for the longest time. But when I started reading about more, especially blogs by autistic adults, because you get, like, a more real picture about day-to-day -day life. And then I thought, wow that's me. What do I do now? So I tried to go through the NHS, but it was not very successful. And I ended up going to a charity that sees a lot of autistic adults and has an assessment there. And then just kind of came out there as a new person-ish. Well, no, really the same person, but just with a new perspective on life. I'm assuming that's been for the better then. Oh, yes. It's, it's changed so much. Um, you hear a lot of I speak to a lot of other autistic adults online and so many of them say they've been to their GP and their GP has said, you've come this far and diagnosis is not going to make any difference to you now. But it changes everything because suddenly you understand yourself a lot more. I think people underestimate how tiring and confusing it is being autistic and not knowing about it because you're, just, you're trying so hard, wearing yourself out and, and you getting half as far and you just can't understand why as soon as I found out I was autistic it was like wow I can sleep better at night I can understand myself better I can recognize when I start to become stressed and when I need to take a break so it's, it's made my whole life a lot easier knowing about it even though there's no real support from the NHS. Is that due to lack of um, capacity for them or is it lack of understanding I mean, I think it's lack of funding and it's a bit of a postcode lottery as well. I mean, I know I've heard people in other counties say that their NHS has been brilliant. So I think it's just one of those things. It depends where you live. I'm, I'm wondering, what was it like discovering that you had autism as a parent? Because you, you mentioned when you emailed us something about autism warrior parents. I should probably say that there's the autistic community, which is autistic adults. And then there's the autism community, which seems to be parents of autistic children and, you know, the experts. 
you know, autism professionals. And there's sadly this huge kind of chasm between the two where we're kind of at war against each other, which is sad because everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants life to be better for autistic people. But there seems to be this disagreement on the how best to go about that. A lot of the autism support groups that are for parents can be quite toxic because you go into these groups and what you hear is how hard it is being the parent of an autistic child, you know, how you wish your child wasn't autistic and how awful autism is. And, you know, it's just it's a horrible thing to read when you're an autistic person that, you know, you're a huge burden. So being an autistic parent of an autistic child is you, you're kind of in between the communities, although a lot of autistic people are parents of autistic children. I mean, where do you think all the autistic kids come from? <laughs> they come from autistic parents. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a tricky situation, but there are groups that are support groups for autistic parents, which is nice. You, you talked a little bit about the autism community, which is basically mm. parents, but what's it like in the autistic community, which is autistic adults? What's that space like? Oh, I love it. It's fantastic. Everybody's so accepting and, you know, we all kind of rally around each other. There's quite a lot of activism going on because, you know, there's, we have to really shout to get ourselves heard. And there's some amazing people doing some amazing things, both in the UK and, you know, in North America as well. How are neuro- neurodivergent identities like a feminist issue? Like, what are the intersecting identities with it? Some groups are less likely to be diagnosed, whether or not this means there's less prevalence in those groups of autism or whether it's just because people don't believe they can be autistic because they don't fit this sort of stereotype. I know that women are less likely to be diagnosed autistic and girls. Um, Also, we are less likely to be diagnosed until later on in life, so boys are more likely to be diagnosed earlier on. Do you know why that would be? A lot of it's maybe to do with conditioning you know girls are more conditioned to be social so it might be that girls put more effort into socializing and therefore they kind of mask their autistic traits because you know we learn quite early on that differences are not accepted so you learn to mask those differences and therefore it doesn't get noticed that you know you're struggling there's also a lot of the autistic traits are based on studies that are done on boys. There are people that say there's a female profile of autism, but a lot of people say as well it's more of an atypical uh, list of traits because there are also boys that can present as female autism um, that are getting missed too. I think an expansion of the list of autistic traits would help to stop boys being diagnosed more than girls to stop white people being diagnosed more than other ethnicities because you know I don't I don't believe personally that white boys are more likely to be autistic than other groups I just think it's a case of research needs to catch up absolutely that's a really interesting point about who who gets um diagnosed or I, or I suppose identified especially because you mentioned that lots of the support and activism is really active in um the UK and in North America which makes me wonder about where where else in the world is it, it would be highly unlikely that autistic people only existed in those spaces right yeah i know i know there's quite a lot in australia too i'm not sure about other countries though because i think it's just a case of 
where are the academics based, where is the research being done, and those are the places where it's more likely that people are going to be diagnosed. Okay, so when we do our intros, when we have our guests on the on the podcast, you know, people say like, "Oh, my name is Elena. I'm 23 years old. I'm I'm white. I'm I'm cis, I'm cisgendered." And I was wondering if it's something that we should start including is like, "I'm neurotypical." What would your feelings be on that? I I would love that because purely just because I love to hear more autistic people out there. I think you know, like the idea of neurodiversity is new to a lot of people, especially if. They are neurotypical because why would they know about it, right? Then it's interesting because, for example, us being neurotypical, that is another type of privilege, isn't it? In that society is geared towards and favours people who have neurotypical functioning. Yeah, it's, it's kind of tricky because in the autistic community, people talk about passing privilege. So if you can pass the neurotypical, then you supposedly gain neurotypical privilege. There's quite a lot of debate about it. But basically, because you can't see somebody as autistic just by looking at them, it's kind of difficult because, you know, some privilege is based on how people look, whereas neurotypical privilege is more based on how society is set up to favour neurotypical people. So you don't always see the struggle people are having what do you think about that, about the passing privilege? Because I spent so long masking, it became automatic for me. And even though it's completely exhausting, you know, passing privilege, I don't think it's as simple as you can pass the NT and then therefore you're privileged because there's a lot of damage that can come with acting neurotypical. And it's not always not always intentional it can vary so much depending on whether somebody has something like obvious stims like hand flapping or whether somebody spent a long time masking or whether they knew from a young age they're autistic and then maybe masked in a different way because I think you know knowing that you're autistic maybe you've still got the pressure to mask because society doesn't like people that act differently so can you quickly um, explain what STIMS are? Because you just mentioned it just then. STIM is short for uh, self-stimulating behaviour. Basically, it's like a stress release kind of thing for autistic people, or it can be an expression of joy. So it's just basically a way to show your emotions. Hand flapping is one. Personally, I chew. I chew chewing gum, which is, I guess more socially acceptable than chewing other stuff. I also have chewy jewellery, which is great, but other people spin or they jump or they sometimes make noises. There's just, it's it's a manifestation, I guess, of emotion. But because a lot of autistic people can do it as a stress release thing, Mm. trying to stop them from doing it can actually cause harm. There was a time when a lot of autistic children were told, you know, quiet hands because people didn't want to be seen with a flapping child because they were embarrassed I guess I don't know but children were encouraged to not act autistic so any kind of obvious stims like hand flapping or spinning or twirling or anything were discouraged and you know those things are harmless they don't they don't harm anyone so I wish society was more accepting. What is the neurodiversity model opinion towards treatment? Again I feel like the word treatment is potentially a problematic word because again treatment suggests that something is wrong. What 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 is your approach to that? In the autistic community there's a lot of worry about autism cures because 
if you changed our brains so that they weren't autistic, we wouldn't be the same person. So, you know, when people say, I wish my child wasn't autistic, what they're really saying is, I wish my child was somebody else, which is harsh, but true. What does a society that is better set up, better equipped to accommodate for people with neurodivergent identities, what does that look like? It can be all sorts of small things like sensory things please get rid of fluorescent lighting it's awful (laughs) everything is when you go outside everything is too bright too loud and too busy just simplifying things would help not staring at people that wear sunglasses indoors or wear hearing defenders all the time because sometimes that's what we need to do to be able to go out you know accepting more different forms of communication i can speak and i do for hours on end Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of autistic people don't. They use other forms of communication and those should be accepted and supported. It shouldn't be a goal to make autistic people speak. You know, If they prefer a different form of communication, then there's nothing wrong with that. Just basically accept more differences. You know, Don't stare at people that are acting funny in public and don't say we're having a tantrum when we're having a meltdown. What can we do as as allies, us and the listeners? What can we do to be better allies to autistic people? I mean, just listen, I guess. Just listen to, to what autistic people have got to say about autism. Too often, you know, you read a story about autism and the quotes are from psychologists and parents and, you know, they never seem to ask autistic people. If you want to know what autistic people think, there's a hashtag actually autistic that you can find on any social media. Please don't use it if you're not autistic, though. If you search that, you will find hundreds, thousands of autistic people all giving their opinions on all kinds of things. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show, Kaz. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us and and speak about it. And also for getting in touch in the first place to let us know what you thought we could do better, because we really appreciate it. Um, Oh, no worries. We've got... I really love your podcast. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to go all fangirl now. You know, it's so nice to hear people accepting of differences. We always ask if the guests have anything that they're working on that they'd like to, you know... Um, I mean, you talked a little bit about the hashtag. Is there anything that people can get in touch with you or good resources you suggest? On YouTube, there's a YouTuber called Amethyst Shaber who goes under the handle Neuro Wonderful. And they have some amazing videos Uh, There's a series called Ask an Autistic and they just do such a good job of explaining everything. Um, So if you want somebody that knows what they're talking about instead of me, (laughs) go and check out their videos. There is a group in the UK called Autistic UK that is a group of autistic people that are campaigning for better rights. I'll read Neuro Tribes. That is the history of autism written by Steve Silberman. He's not autistic, but you know no one's perfect it's a really hard read it's got nazis it's got eugenics it's but it's amazing and you know reading that is just such an eye-opener as for me i'm on twitter sort of a a little bit um aut underscore cheerful aut is a-u-t and i blog at autistic and cheerful dot wordpress dot com And that was Kaz, who spoke to us about autism and parenting. The idea of passing in a neurotypical world really struck us. And a huge thank you to Kaz, who got in touch to explain neurodiversity and why we should do more to include it in our podcast series. See, great things really do happen when you get in touch. We really hope that you enjoyed this month's episode on disability. As always, please let us know what you thought, as it really does help us to choose the next topics and tackle things just that little bit more differently. Huge thanks to our assistant producers, Becky Malone and Amelia Parker, for the help with this episode in particular. 
You can drop us an email at kickingthekariaki at gmail.com. Contact us via our website, www.kickingthekariaki.org. Or you can tweet us at kickkariaki. Facebook us at kickingthekariaki. And then while you're at it, why not leave us a review on iTunes? That's all from us. Over and out. Salut, Elena. <gasps> Salut, Sidonie. Comment ça va? Ça va bien? Et tu? Oui, je vais bien, merci. Euh, bien. Est-ce que tu veux un chocolat chaud? Euh, j'adore. <rire> chocolat chaud. Oui, c'est vrai. <rire> c'est vrai. Poulet. <rire> Je parlais français moins bien. <rire> I think you know you got that wrong. <rire> Oh no! Let's just stick to intersectional feminism, shouldn't we? Yeah, right then. (laughs) Bye, pals. Bye. Have a great day. If you're listening to it still right now, I want you to know that I believe in you and you're phenomenal and you're going to have a wonderful day. You got this. Yeah. Woo! Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.